WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. What the soap? WTS and Company in Prattsville for soaps and lotions made on site, locally handcrafted candles, pottery, jewelry, art, and gifts, and a hand-picked selection of books on homesteading, nature, and local history. WTS and Company in the Prattsville Plaza and online at whatthesoap.com. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center on State Route 10 in Walton for disposal and recycling. Open 7.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center information about materials and disposal fees at 607-832-5800 or see the Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center link at WIOXradio.org. Peekamoo's Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian. For farm-to-table cuisine, seasonal specialty cocktails, and local craft beers, Peekamoo's Dining Room, Tap Room, Lounge, and Outdoor Deck. Open Thursday through Monday at 5 p.m. Dinner reservations recommended 845-254-6500. 845-254-6500. Peekamoo's.com. This is WIOX, Roxbury, Delhi, Andes, Downsville, Margaretville, Arkville, Stamford, Grand Gorge, Middleburgs, Gohari, Pine Hill, Fleischmann's, Bovina, Hobart, Halkettsville, Halkett Center, Prattsville, Bloomville, and Big Indian. Okay, you're listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable TV Channel 20 on the campus of SUNY Delhi at 107.5 FM, worldwide at WIOXradio.org, and on any mobile device FM radio app. This is From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? No, it's going fine. How are you? All right, what have you been up to? Um, what was I up to this weekend? I, um, I cut a scotch pine out of a pond. That was a first. 
you dragged it out, right? Dragged it out okay. while it was uprooted, so I had to cut it off the stump. The stump righted itself back down. That's always fun to watch. Um, yeah, that's, that was my major task. Yeah, I uh, I was in the woods like it was 1840, and I was stripping the bark off a hemlock. Oh, nice. So <laughs> That time of year? Yeah, you know, it's a little hobby tanning thing I got going on, so uh took the bark. The bark comes right off a of hemlock this time of year. And stacked it up and then hauled it out. So it's kind of nice, you know. Come back for the wood, use it as sapwood the next year or whatever. Once you take the bark off, it just lasts forever in the woods. Mm -hmm. There's a tree I cut down, a hemlock. I could not get to this one for sapwood, and it was dying already, so don't worry. Um, eight years ago plus, it's like I just took it down. Wow. Yeah. So they last quite a bit. That's cool. So, uh... Do you use the bark right now, or is this next, next year's bark? Next year's. goes through a chipper and then uh, added with water and, um, you know, create the tea. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, pretty cool. But um, tonight we're going to be talking about New York State Wetlands Regulations Update with Ed McTiernan. Ed is an environmental litigator who focuses on state and federal regulatory issues, including site remediation, brownfield redevelopment, natural resources damages, energy and infrastructure project, as well as environmental permitting and due diligence in support of real estate development and energy infrastructure. In 2011, Mr. McTiernan was appointed to the New York State DEC by Governor Andrew Cuomo, where he served as Deputy Commissioner and General Counsel. In that capacity, he was responsible for enforcement, rulemaking, and major policy initiatives, including the review and permitting of transportation and energy projects. Let me let me see if I can get Ed on. Hello. Yes. Hey, Hi. how's it Hi, going? Ryan. Hi, John. Good, thanks. How are you? Ah, we're fine. It's a nice day out. You know, these are rare days, low humidity. Well, it's not too humid. So, what have you been up to? Uh, so, um, you know, the usual, uh, working, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm happy to be on the show. I'm, I'm very excited to be talking to your audience about wetlands regulations. It's it's a topic that I've been involved with for a long, long time. Um, you know, I, I started out uh, as a biologist. I got a biology degree way back um, in the 70s. <laughs> And I went to graduate school um, to get an environmental science degree. And my master's thesis way back in, I hate to admit it, 1979, was about New York's then relatively new uh, wetlands programs. Um, for a while, I worked as a field technician, an environmental consultant, uh, doing, among many other things, wetlands delineations. And eventually found my way into law school, and um, I've been practicing environmental law for a long time. And as you said, uh, back in 2011, the arc of my career took a little bit of a change. I went from private practice and had the opportunity to, to work at DEC. And, um, you know, I've recently, I think, um, been monitoring a lot of the developments in legislation in New York, including the budget bill that got passed back in January that changed um, some of the fundamentals about freshwater wetlands regulation in New York. 
Yeah, we get we mean the Catskill Forest Association when we're not here on from the forest. We get uh, lots of questions from forest owners throughout the uh, six counties of the Catskills about wetlands, and I'm pretty ignorant about it. I know a little bit, but I guess what what little I know may have already changed. So you're the guy. Well, uh, I'm happy to talk um, and tell you what I what I do understand. I mean, you know, maybe it would help you and the audience if if we explain some wetlands basics, so we all kind of start from a common understanding about what's a regulated wetland. And um, unfortunately, um, you know, after all these many years, wetlands have been regulated at the federal level, at the state level, sometimes at the municipal level. There really is not always a common definition of what constitutes a freshwater wetland in particular. Um, and, you know, Wetlands are kind of a unique um, phenomenon. What happens is when there is enough water in the environment, and it can be rainwater, it can be runoff, it can be high groundwater table, it starts to fundamentally change the nature of the soil. It's kind of an anaerobic condition, and some of the minerals in the soil get reduced, and when the soil starts to change in that way, um, it supports special vegetation that's adapted to, um, to those conditions. So even though federal agencies, for example, the Fish and Wildlife Service and um, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and EPA, who all have roles in, in regulating uh, wetlands, they all have slightly different classification systems and definitions. It really all turns on vegetation and the hydrologic re regime that, you know, that the, that the location experiences and how that changes soil and vegetation and, you know, sometimes the position, like the relative um, altitude, can affect uh, the formation of wetlands. So what we're talking about tonight are, are places. Um, some people might think of them as bogs or, um, or uh, marshes but it's where they get enough water enough of the time so that the soil has started to change and the vegetation has started to respond to those, those changes. Um, and, you know, I mentioned uh, back in, in 1979 uh, when I first started to take a really deep interest in this, this issue, some of the uh, functions of, uh, of wetlands were a little bit, um, I don't know what, new or controversial, you know, for a long time throughout the colonial period and, and through the expansion of, of, you know, industrial activities and then residential activities uh, in the United States, wetlands were thought of as areas that were a nuisance. They bred mosquitoes, vermin, um, you know, they were not particularly stable, and there was a lot of filling of wetlands, often, often with the encouragement of the government. Um, but through the 60s and 70s and the changes in our stewardship of, you know, certain natural areas, it became recognized that um, wetlands provide a lot of important ecological benefits. Um, they act like sponges, so they're very important in flood control, and they provide recharge to groundwater. Um, you know, as I mentioned, they support vegetation that's often different from, from surrounding areas. And that vegetation can, in turn, be, be very important to wildlife or uh, 
you know, at the edge of a, of a pond, fish habitat. Uh, and wetlands are now recognized as, you know, really productive and often a breeding ground or nursery for many, many forms of wildlife. And as a result, at, at the state level and at the federal level, they've, they've taken on an importance and a protective status. And, you know, regulating wetlands is one of the most intrusive ways that the government often manages land uses um, and land use controls because uh, the presence of wetlands can cut across all zoning districts or, you know, um, locations, downtown uh, or suburban. And uh, it, is a, um, it is a unique way in which, in which we impose um, environmental protections on landowners. So, um, so what are the regulatory agencies that are involved? I mean, can you explain that, how that works, that tier system or whatever? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to try and explain it. Um, it's, it, it defi- sometimes it defies easy explanation or easy analysis. But at the federal level, the primary agency that is involved in the management of wetlands, remarkably enough, is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, and that's kind of a historical uh, artifact because... Um, literally, you know, more than 100 years ago, the Army Corps of Engineers had the primary um, federal function of regulating dredge and fill, which was thought of as a, you know, a infringement on the navigable capacity of, of the nation's waterways. And a lot of wetlands regulation revolves around that idea of, of waters of the U.S., waterways, and in some cases their navigable capacity. But the Army Corps of Engineers is the federal agency that permits the dredging and filling of of wetlands. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and EPA play important roles that are are kind of to consult with and advise uh, the Army Corps. And EPA has some some veto authority over certain permits that, that the Army Corps might be inclined to issue. But when you're seeking a wetlands permit, especially in New York State, you're seeking it often from the Department of Environmental Conservation and the Federal Army Corps of Engineers. Um, the state agency that probably plays the biggest role in wetlands and, and wetlands management is you know, my former agency, the Department of Environmental Conservation. Um, they regulate both coastal wetlands, wetlands that are in tidal saltwater locations, as well as what we're talking about this evening, freshwater wetlands, which are inland waterways associated with, you know, streams, ponds, or they can be standalone. There does not have to be running water to create a regulated uh, wetland. But New York is, as you guys know, I'm sure, a very strong home rule state. And back in the mid-'70s when these laws were emerging, it was thought that it was important to preserve a role for local government. And as a result, in, in New York State, only the largest or most uh, productive and important wetlands are regulated uh, by D.C. And the legislature made a decision that smaller wetlands, wetlands that were less than uh, 12.4 acres or 5 hectares in size, the primary uh, regulators should be local governments. And it was 
originally envisioned by the legislature that, you know, wetlands management would be sort of part of a, the usual land use, local land use scheme. Well, I think what people forgot is it takes a lot of resources <laughs> to run that kind of program, and a lot of, uh, you know, towns and villages didn't have that kind of resources. So there was often a gap in New York State where large mapped wetlands were regulated by DEC and the Army Corps of Engineers, but smaller wetlands, oddly enough, were really the purview of the federal government, the, the Army Corps. Now, as a practical matter for a developer, somebody who, for example, wants to subdivide a, a large tract to build, you know, housing or, or perhaps some commercial center, you know, in New York we have State Environmental uh, Quality Review Act and any number of other state requirements. So freshwater wetlands often became an adjunct to those sorts of, like, more general uh, environmental assessments. But as a strict matter of jurisdiction, uh, the DEC's uh, jurisdiction is limited to, to wetlands that are large. And very importantly, and a very unique aspect of New York's freshwater wetlands program is until this year, wetlands had to appear on, on maps, maps that the state created. Um, and, you know, that's perhaps the most unique feature of, um, of New York's freshwater wetlands program. Most other state programs that regulate freshwater wetlands, for example, in neighboring New Jersey, follow the same sort of uh, three-pronged test that I alluded to earlier, um, you know, soil, hydrology, vegetation, and that's followed by the Army Corps to identify wetlands. And that's done on a case-by-case -case basis. It's up to the landowner to, um, you know, to determine whether or not there are wetlands present and if there are wetlands present on a property and there's a proposal that would involve uh, adverse impacts to the wetlands, then, then it's up to the property owner to get the wetlands delineated and get a permit. In New York State, like I said, back in the mid-'70s, the legislature decided that it would impose this mapping requirement. And um, that turned out to be a long and arduous and um, a very difficult um, proposition for the DEC. Um, these maps, as you can imagine, were controversial, um, and it took a lot of resources to produce them. Uh, the, the legislature was concerned about property owners' rights, and DEC is required to um, essentially treat each one of these maps as if it were a regulation. So a draft map is prepared. It was published for comment. Uh, all, proper, all affected property owners had to get a copy. There was often a public hearing. Uh, then there would be a review of the map before it could be finally, quote-unquote, published and then adopted. And, you know, there just are not that much resources to, to do that task and constantly update the maps because, of course, conditions in the field change, as you know. When you're in the woods one day, a spot seems pretty wet. A few weeks later, it just seems remarkably dry. Um, and as a result, there are a lot of maps in New York State that are probably out of date. The wetlands are either larger than, than depicted or smaller than depicted, and uh, it's caused quite a bit of confusion and in some cases, when there are development proposals, controversy. I mean, shouldn't it be kind of difficult for, for them to 
to do these maps? I mean, don't you want a public comment period? And I mean, we do this with other things, no? You certainly do. But here's what's happened over the last uh, couple of decades since uh, since the adoption of the Freshwater Wetlands Act. Yeah. Um, at, <laughs> the federal regulation of wetlands has undergone um, some kind of uh, cyclic developments. Uh, throughout the 70s and 80s, um, the federal government was able to, you know, extend its jurisdiction over a lot of areas, some of which you and I would have a hard time recognizing as wetlands. Um, the idea of isolated wetlands, wetlands that are not connected necessarily to a surface water body, um, those uh, fell under certain definitions that the Army Corps published. Um, and probably between around 1985 and about the year 2000, you know, federal wetlands um, jurisdiction was at its highest. And, you know, as a result, frankly, the environmental community and um, other activists in, in places like New York, but other states as well, you know, were reasonably content to uh, leave uh, the federal government to regulate uh, a lot of freshwater areas. Um, there has been what some people would characterize as a uh, erosion of, of federal authority over some of these uh, more controversial areas. Um, you know, we, uh, property owners would perhaps view it as a rebalancing of the rights and, uh, and benefits. Um, and what happened most recently, well, there have been a series of, of U.S. Supreme Court cases helping to define wetlands. And um, that definition, despite, you know, the federal uh, legislation in this area, the Federal uh, Clean Water Act going all the way back to 1973, that definition is still very, very unsettled. Why, why we, is it unsettled? What, what makes it unsettling? Uh, is it what you talked about before, that three-prong? What, what makes it so? Yeah, so it, it, defining and, and actually applying in the field those three tests, those three elements, has proven to be very difficult, especially for wetlands that do not have an obvious connection to a surface water body. And there's a important uh, Supreme Court case that, that some of your listeners, um, you know, may have heard about. Uh, it was decided. Um, um, I'm trying to get the exact year, but it, it was decided in the mid 2000s. And um, the Supreme Court, <laughs> the nine justices, came up with four different definitions. Uh, and as a result, um, the the best that can be kind of said is um, that what, has, what a wetlands has to have, especially an isolated wetland, one that does not have a stream or a pond associated with it, it needs a significant nexus. That's the, that's the operative word in the, um, in the eyes of the Supreme Court. It needs a significant nexus with um, the functioning of a wetland that otherwise does have a connection to surface water bodies. And... As a result, um, a lot of property owners have challenged various wetlands determinations, and there's a case known as Sackett versus EPA, which has wound its way through the courts. 
Uh, and um, the U.S. Supreme Court announced in January of this year that it would um, review Sackett and presumably uh, consider the significant nexus test and perhaps announce a whole new definition of the limits of federal jurisdiction. That's a kind of a long-winded answer, Ryan, but, but that background <laughs> activated a lot of, um, you know, a lot of environmental groups, perhaps some other stakeholders, and, you know, revisited the New York requirement to, to map, to, the maps were jurisdictional. And as a result, in January of this year, um, the New York State Legislature adopted and uh, the governor eventually signed uh, new legislation that essentially removes the mapping requirement, okay. so that the threshold of two point—I'm sorry—of 12.4 acres and the mandate that maps are jurisdictional in nature—that's really gone in New York, um, and it's because of it, well, it's at least in large part because of the uncertainty at the federal level about what would be protected. Okay, so that's gone. So, so now what? So how do we know where a wetland is today? Okay. <laughs> so right now we're in a strange transition um, time, but what's going to happen next is the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation will have to put out rules. And the, the statute that was adopted in January uh, provides about 11 categories of not really categories, 11 features of a wetland that would make it um, of quote-unquote unusual importance. And if a wetland is found to be of unusual importance, then it is regulated regardless of whether or not it is mapped, okay? And until the DEC issues rules on this topic, it, you know, presumably the maps still control, but, but, um, the definition of unusual importance is going to be pretty wide open. Mm-hmm. And then when it's finally adopted as a, as a regulation, it, New York will be very similar to what the federal program is now, which is that the landowner who has a proposal to develop or otherwise adversely impact a wetland, and, and if that proposal requires a permit, the landowner is going to have to provide a delineation report along with its, you know, development application. The DEC will review the delineation, presumably in the field, uh, and these delineations, you know, involve somebody going out to the property. They often take some very shallow soil cores to see, you know, what the soil's um, doing, how it's responding. Uh, the, the, you know, wetlands... Scientists often are biologists who have, um, you know, veg, uh, you know, understanding of the vegetation. They identify the vegetation, and they mark, literally flag, as a surveyor would in the field, what they describe to be the limits of the wetlands. And then either the Army Corps or in, eventually the DEC comes out and either agrees or disagrees with those limits, and that becomes on a case-by-case basis the delineation for a particular property, but I want to I want to add a kicker here, which I know is not going <laughs> to not going to be uh, um, good news to some people. 
But it's not only the wetlands itself that is regulated. Uh, you know, wetlands regulators don't like to use the term buffer, <laughs> but there is in New York State something called the adjacent area, which can be up to 100 feet away from the edge of the wetlands itself. Um, and again, in the upcoming rulemaking, uh, the DC may take the opportunity to refine, you know, how uh, the wetlands adjacent area is both defined and what its limits are. But what the adjacent area phenomenon, um, what it means is, you know, the wetlands could all be on your neighbor's property, <laughs> and you get the the encumbrance of the adjacent area where where uh, the permit program uh, applies with equal force. Okay. Um, hold on a second. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is New York State Wetlands Regulations Update with Ed McTiernan. Ed, so what you're, let me see if I have this right. Um, a landowner wants to develop their property. It's on them to prove basically that it's up to them to, to – um, delineate it, and you know it, the cost is going to be is moving from the DEC basically to the landowner, and to prove that what they're doing is permittable. So the there are two different there are two different questions there, but that's sort of basically right, Ryan. Um, the first question is delineation. Delineation uh, has certainly uh, been moved from the mapping process, which was. Largely, although not only, but largely at, at the state's expense. Uh, the reason why I say it's not only at the state's expense, because if a property owner received a notice that his property had, was uh, proposed for a mapped wetlands and they wanted to challenge it, you know, it was, it's not unheard of for them to engage a professional consultant and, and claim that, no, we did a study or we, we did a field investigation and, and you're simply wrong. So, so challenging a map was an expense that a that a property owner might have to bear. But it, you're, you're correct that going forward, a, an owner, a property owner, or a developer uh, who has a plan that would, that would potentially require a permit will have to prove that they either have no wetlands or they've avoided the wetland or they're not going to impact the adjacent area. Okay. Um, and then I guess... What I don't like, I don't like it when government uses these open-ended kind of terms, these subjective terms of unusual importance. I, I guess, you know, the details, those are in the details. So what would be some examples of unusual importance? And, and again, that word unusual is kind of like the nexus word that you used before that I'm still kind of confused how they would uh, define that. I don't know. Well, so it, 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 I, I must tell you, um, Ryan, it, it runs it runs the gamut. On one end, on one end, um, the legislature has provided some really narrow definitions for unusual importance. For example, a location that contains a plant species that occurs in fewer than thirty five locations across the state. I mean, that's that's a truly unusual occurrence. I mean, I think we'd all kind of recognize that. Um, at the other extreme, though, uh, wet, freshwater wetlands are considered unusual if they are within or adjacent to an urban area. And, you know, that could be a lot of locations. Um, so that's, you know, that shows the range. 
There are other features. Um, if you have a wetland that's, that only appears in the springtime, these, these so-called vernial pools, um, and that are known to be habitat for amphibians or other um, unique uh, breeding um, you know, animals, um, those are potentially of unusual importance. Um, areas that play an important role locally in flood control uh, are also supposed to be defined somehow by DEC and regulated as wetlands of unusual importance. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of the things that your listeners might want to do um, is pay very close attention to what DEC does next. There will be opportunities for stakeholders, property owners, local governments, your uh, organizations uh, to comment on these rules. Uh, you know, it's not unheard of to align yourself with some, um, some professionals who might be providing services to landowners groups or others who might also be, um, you know, in a position to analyze and comment on the proposed rules. There are likely to be public hearings on some of these issues, and uh, you know people can influence DEC decision making by by you know by making their voices heard. Um, some of the classification of of wetlands and adjacent areas are likely to be refined in this upcoming rulemaking, and again, uh, commenting on those and pointing to real life examples um, uh, is something that that might influence DEC's thinking. I may have missed, but um, under this new rulemaking, does the 12.4 acres carry? Are we still only talking about larger wetlands, or is this all wetlands now, anything we're, less? No, we're, the size limit is essentially gone. The size limit was, was for mapping, and the maps are now advisory, not not jurisdictional. Not, not They don't determine the extent of wetlands. So a much smaller wetland can be of unusual importance. Frankly... There was always an exception for DEC to, to map and designate areas of unusual importance, but they still had to be mapped. What this new legislation does is eliminate the mapping requirement and further refine and define unusual importance. What, I don't know if you can comment on this, but why now? Like, what was the big push all of a sudden? Beside, I mean, you mentioned the cost to DEC, but what was yeah. the push to do well, I don't this? Think I don't think the cost to DEC was so much the push. I mean, frankly, the cost to DEC hit DEC probably 20 years ago when a lot of these maps were first first produced and, and you know, uh, adopted. The, the real push over the last couple of years has been all the uncertainty caused by the, by the Supreme Court, uh, um, you know, revisiting federal authority. I, you know, and frankly, um, the last administration uh, took a very favorable view and a very limited view of federal um, jurisdiction over wetlands. And that risk um, that somehow the federal government was going was gonna to abandon the field <laughs> and uh, take a very narrow view of what it could regulate, I think, activated and motivated a lot of um, – a lot of uh, environmental organizations and um, and you know activists. Yeah, I mean, I, I, anecdotally, you know, we deal with a lot of forest owners in the Catskills, 
Um, we have over 1,100 family memberships and, and thousands of acres. I don't see in our neck of the woods people wanting to mess with wetlands at all. Do you, John? No, only um, only the popular idea of having a pond. Yeah. You do, see, right. you do see a lot of landowners putting in ponds. Okay. I mean, they just seem expensive to do anything with. And, you know, it is poorly drained land. But um, will this have adverse effects on – is there any exceptions to the rule, like agriculture, forestry, et cetera? Yeah, so there are – so New York State has a essentially a two-tiered uh, permitting system. Um, at, at one level, you – well, it, 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 presuming you have jurisdictional wetlands on your property, which – means in the future that there's a delineated wetland on the property. There are two ways that it can be developed um, in compliance with, with New York State law. The first is you can get a um, letter of authorization, and that's usually for less intrusive activities, um, you know, um, Forest management, especially in accordance with a with a you know approved forestry plan, um, you know more uh, passive uses, uh, those are often authorized through a simple letter process uh, by DEC. If you have you know more extensive development and agriculture, agriculture most existing agricultural activities are exempt from the freshwater wetlands permitting program in. New York. So if you have a farm, including, you know, a, a cranberry bog or, or, you know, those cranberry bogs are by definition wetlands, but those activities, continuation of the existing activities, um, exempt. Where, where agriculture, where the agricultural community often, uh, you know, butts up against D.C. is, so you have an existing field and somehow you build a road around the edge of it. Or somehow, you know, there's a, now a greenhouse where there used to just be an orchard. You know, those are, those are areas where there are disputes over agricultural activity. But, but the, if you need a permit, if you need a permit, you will need to do a delineation, which, you know, I hate to say it, almost inevitably requires, you know, a professional to help you. And then you will need to show, essentially, that you did what you could to avoid the wetland. You know, I, I laid out this building, I, I designed this roadway, um, you know, the, the entranceway to this uh, strip center, you know, uh, avoids most of the wetland, but where you didn't avoid it, somehow you mitigated. So it is possible to get a permit based upon minimization of the impact Avoidance where possible and mitigation of the known impacts. That's really the formula for getting a permit when you need a permit. Um, I mean, ironically, I feel like agriculture has has been the most impacting on wetlands. I would think, and yet they're exempt. And I'm, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I mean, maybe that's not true. What, what do you think? Well, uh, you know, um, look. Um, some of the value ascribed to wetlands is often, you know, it's open space. Um, agriculture is seen as supporting some of those same values. Uh, you know, these are tough policy calls that fortunately elected officials get to make, but the mere lawyers, <laughs> you know, don't. 
So um, there are there are a lot of agricultural activities that encroach upon what were historically wetlands. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, but there is also a lot of other development uh, that has somehow found its way into wetlands. Um, you know, so um, I think I think the whole program here is to avoid making some of the mistakes that we've we've made in the past. Yeah, meanwhile, I think the second biggest wetland is the. I always heard. I don't know if this is true, but the Chichunk Canal that drained uh, the Upper Walk Hill in in uh, Orange County, New York, the the Black Dirt Country is it's black yeah, yeah. Be- for a reason. <laughs> yeah, no, that that shows the the conversion that we talked about before. Yes, that that's the reduction of all minerals to uh, to organic material. No question. It's pretty cool. I remember playing soccer there when I was in middle school, and it, it caught my eye when you would see that black dirt in someone's garden or or a field. And uh, it's pretty cool. But, yeah. And that underscores, so, you know, how productive that area is for farms. That underscores how productive wetlands can be because those soils do have the organic content and, and you know, and the water. Yeah. But I do, I do want to, before we get too late, uh, I want to hit on a couple of things that I know come up when, when property owners think this through, Ryan, if that's okay. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the New York legislature did – consider, uh, you know, any number of property owners' uh, concerns. Um, the, New York, the New York Freshwater Wetlands Act does recognize that if you have a wetland and if you can show that you have been denied all uses of it, essentially all, you know, reasonable economic uses of it, you can petition, and the legislature has instructed the D.C. and Perhaps some others, APA and some others, they're supposed to take title, take it off the, take it off. If you want to regulate it completely, take it off the property owner's hand, and uh, you know, buy it. Doesn't happen very often, and the hurdle to show that that the property has essentially been taken is very high, but but it's a relief valve that is that is out there. Can you um, define uses? Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's a series of court cases, both at the federal level and, and some at the state level, that say that even relatively modest um, uses that have, that have some economic benefit, um, you know, are a void of findings that the property has been taken. So even passive recreation... Um, you know, can can help the government avoid the conclu- a court concluding that the property has been taken. Passive recreation, like like I think we talked about this off the air, uh, but like you're saying, picnicking. Well, I don't know about just having a family picnic, but you know, there are many. Uh, I don't want to name them, but uh, you know, as you know, in your in your area in particular, there are um, there are fee based. Um, you know, properties for hiking and, and access, that seems to be sufficient economic activity. Um, so, you know, that is a challenge. And even if you have some modest, um, you know, harvesting of wood products or other natural products, that can be sufficient. I mean, valuation is always a tough problem, and it's not a problem for D.C. I don't forget, D.C. doesn't do property assessments or property valuation. It's for some other judge or fact finder to make but um 
you know, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to like understate how hard it is to prove that your property has been taken. Uh, I yeah. do. There yeah. is another instruction in the, in the New York State Freshwater Wetlands Act that people should be aware of, especially if the rules change and, and the jurisdiction expands. Uh, there is an instruction that the tax assessors are supposed to take into account the wetlands designation of the property. That's not that's not a blanket like rollback of assessments by the legislature. You know, assessments are a local process that requires a host of other considerations. Uh, but but it is a reminder that um, that if you find yourself with the wetlands on your property, and especially if you've applied for a permit and you have been denied, you know the, your your valuation for local assessment purposes should be. A, Presumably, should be adjusted. So, those are two features of the Freshwater Wetlands Act that are maybe footnotes, but certainly worth knowing about. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break, but uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Tonight's topic is New York State Wetlands Regulations Update with Ed McTiernan. <laughs>
All right. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic. Tonight's topic is New York State Wetlands Regulations Update with Ed McTiernan. Um, Ed, you still there? I am. Excellent. So, um, is there anything you wanted to bring up? Because I got a few questions, but uh, we only got about seven minutes, six minutes left in the show. Is there anything you wanted to, to, to punch in? Well, I just would underscore for your listeners that the, the, the couple of things I want to do is, you know, next fall this Supreme Court case, Sackett, will be argued. That will certainly get some attention and may change the way people think about how the state should act. And the other thing is to be on the lookout for is rulemaking activity by the New York State DEC as they attempt to define this, you know, unusual importance and how they transition to a delineation-based from a map-based um, classification system. So those are things that people can stay informed about and, and take part in. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I just feel like John and I were talking off the air, and, you know, we have our own biases, but that's okay. We all do. I just feel like the cards are stacked against the landowner. I mean, it, it's just another way, especially in our area here, where people could use this a, a neighbor that doesn't like their neighbor and doesn't like what they're doing, and now they can kind of use this as another hammer or whatever and say, yeah, they got a wetland or whatever. I don't know. I just see it going that way. I could be wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong, but that's the way I, I sometimes see it. Uh, it's hard for me to comment on that exactly. <laughs> the, you know, Hatfield and McCoy type disputes, I guess, happen all the time. Oh, yeah. There's already an awful lot of uh, regulations so that between archaeological resources <laughs> and environmental impacts, stormwater runoff, yeah. seems like you can agitate. But um, Just add it to the list. I actually had this, this happens more than once with our own members where. They wanted us to, you know, get involved with a wetland on the property. Isn't that a wetland? Can't can't we stop this development down the road? And I, I think it's well-intentioned a lot of times, but, you know, they're looking for reasons to use it, whether it's a historical district or they think maybe they're close to one or whatever, and the wetland, you can just add that to the list. I, I see it in the Hudson Valley, mid-Hudson Valley, and the Catskills quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, people forget the Hudson Valley was where the environmental movement in this country, you know, really took flight. Uh, you have a fair number of affluent people who can afford to, you know, engage consultants and occasionally attorneys and uh, can be a difficult combination for everyone. So. Yeah, become stakeholders. Where do people come up with numbers? I mean, 12.4 acres, 5 hectares, 35 unique or less sites across America. It's it's just like when you sit down and listen to people in a room and you want to know exactly where they got it from and sometimes you question if it was scientific based or not and you know, can you comment on any any of that? Well, I, I look, uh, I know that the 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 12.4 acres, 5 hectares is is an odd number, I think. I it's my understanding that at the time 1975 that was like considered the reliable limits that could be done through remote sensing, aerial mapping. Mm. And there's also, you know, as you can imagine, these maps were originally paper and mylar. <laughs> yeah. And so there was a scaling challenge. You know, we, we, we laugh about it now in the modern world when everything's online, but, but, but there, were, there were practical limits. Uh, the 11 categories and, uh, of, of unusual importance, and the exact specification for, you know, how many uh, species makes it, uh, com you know, rare or unique. These are the kinds of things that legislators debate, I guess, you know, behind closed doors. 
and we may never know exactly what was considered <laughs> right. in some of those decisions. Um, Do you think um, incentives-wise this will be good, meaning like what, what will be the unintentional or intentional consequences of this? Will it inspire landowners to say, yeah, I have landowner, or will they hide it? You know, I, I don't know. Look, for some of the reasons you alluded to earlier, it's hard to it's hard to hide a development proposal that would impact any natural areas in right. Hudson Valley. I mean, it just yeah. I suppose it's possible to build a still somewhere in Yohala. <laughs> no one knows about it, <laughs> but that seems uh, that seems unlikely. You know, hopefully, hopefully it will slightly rebalance, but won't be a dramatic uh, you know imposition on legitimate you know uses. And, you know, in the permitting program, uh, beneficial use is, you know, supposed to be taken into account. Hopefully the regulators, whether it's your local zoning board or whether it's the D.C. and in, in, in New Paltz or in Albany or wherever points in between, that they'll make some reasonable accommodations. Um, you know, at the one extreme, there are probably ill-advised, uh, you know, large-scale development that, that maybe could be relocated or redesigned. At the other end, though, you hate to think that every property owner who wants to go over a ditch to get his driveway out to the main road, you know, is going to impose, you know, have a lot of expenses imposed upon them. Right. Striking that balance is, you know, is what we struggle to do in this state on so many topics. <laughs> um, uh, we got about two and a half minutes left, but it seems like. Um you're saying, I think, before this might go back to the Supreme Court at some point. Well, that's the federal. That's the federal program. Yeah, at the State, federal program. Yes, that is before the Supreme Court. Now, they, the the initial briefs have been filed. It will be argued. This this important case called Sackett will be argued presumably next fall, and you know who knows when the court will rule, and they may help refine the limits of federal jurisdiction or. They might punt it back to EPA and or the Army Corps, any number of options. You know, Nice to be on the Supreme Court. No one gets to second-guess you. You're the last decision-maker. Yeah, right. Um, got about a minute. So is there anything you wanted to leave off on or anything you see in the future exciting uh, environment, well, I, environmental litigation-wise? Well, no. I, I'm happy, uh, thank you very much for having me on the program. I, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting times to be an environmental lawyer. I'm sure it's a very challenging time to be a property owner in the Hudson Valley, uh, but we all got to eventually, you know, find our balance here and, and make our path forward. Yeah, Ed, thanks for coming on tonight and uh, really breaking this down in a clear and concise manner. Great, thank you, Ryan. Good night, John. Thank all right. you. Good night. Good night. Bye. And if uh, you missed the show tonight, that was uh, Ed McTiernan talking about New York State wetlands regulations update and. Uh, He's from Arnold and Palmer, and um, yeah, that was pretty cool. He, he can explain things really well. That was nice. It is, because uh, I coincidentally got asked about wetlands not too long ago from a member and realized um, I definitely needed a brush up. But it uh, looks like it's about to change, though, right? That it's gonna These 11 points are going to come out. I think we need to learn what's in those 11 points. Yes, for sure. We right. only learned about three of them on the show here. Okay. All right, John. Uh, everyone have a good night. See you next week. Good night. Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow.
His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. Then the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway, and the bottle was his friend. And the old man stumbled in from the forest. Up a dark and dingy staircase, the old man made his way. His ragged coat around him as upon his cart he lay. And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way. Getting lost like a fool in the forest. And as he lay there sleeping, a vision did appear. Upon his mantle shining the face of one so dear. Who'd loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year. When the wildflowers did bloom. his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name and then he heard the joyful sound of children at their games in an old house on a hillside in some forgotten town where the river runs down from the forest Big J. 